Before we get started with this week's episode, just a reminder that we will be running our first ever live show this November at Glebe Town Hall in Sydney. Head to earlyeducationshow.com forward slash live to find out more and book tickets. We'd love to see you there. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show, episode 46. It's great to be back with you. I'm Liam. And I'm Lisa. And we... I don't have any banter to have here, Lisa. It's not gone well. This is probably the only thing we need to let everyone know is that we, we're we going to take a couple of weeks off for the next few weeks, sort of over the, the general school holidays for everyone. There might still be, if I'm feeling very organised and, uh, and and has some, and feel like doing some editing, there might be a couple of smaller episodes coming up, but we're going to be taking a little break. Do you think people can survive without us for a couple of weeks, Lisa? I'm sure they can, especially when we tell them that Leanne will be back with us when we come back. Exactly. and I've, well, They're probably getting a bit sick of us. So. Pro- well, probably. But the other thing is I, I see the occasional message saying, um, it's great, but I'm really far behind. So this will give you a chance to catch up with all your listening people. This is your homework. We expect you to be caught up. In two, in two weeks' time. Uh, but let's let's leap right into it with the news list. And we've got just a few sort of stories to bring you uh, this week and, and probably a couple of articles about each one. Um, this one sort of made a lot of the national media, which is about the Education Minister, Simon Birmingham, looking at introducing uh, a test in year one on... Uh, another test. Another test. And uh, we know, and for regular listeners to the show, we'll know Leanne's feelings on this particular. So we'll both have to try and do our best to channel her views on this, Lisa, as we go along. But um, this in particular is 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 looking at uh, phonics and and essentially seems to be based on a report that's been done by the Centre for Independent Studies, which is quite a right-leaning um, uh, sort of research or conservative-leaning research uh, body, we should say. Uh, and they've sort of suggested that doing this sort of... Um, screening of basic literacy and numeracy skills... Uh, will help identify children who are falling behind. Uh, what do what mean? What do you sort of think about this, Lisa? I've got some views, but um, I haven't done a very good spend summary. Spending money on early education so that no one falls behind, <laughs> rather than spending money on a test, which will probably help some you know, commercial test provider exactly. to make money, rather than <laughs> doing anything about the children. And if you're not going to put more money into reading and maths once you discover who's no good at it, What's then the point? why not just let teachers assess whether children are, are okay or up to standard the way they've been doing for years and years and years without another test. Yeah, it's crazy. And look, and, and so the process here seems to be so the report's been released, sort of Simon Birmingham's released it for discussion. Uh, the education ministers from all the states and territories will come together in December to just sort of discuss the plan and potentially improve it. So it wouldn't be looking at starting till 2019. But, you know, this is, seems to be a bit of another reaction to Australia's very disappointing results in education statistics, uh, not just in early education, but in primary and secondary as well. Uh, and I, I, this, this just kind of makes my mind boggle that they listen to, to, to the part of those stories that says Australia's doing badly, but then ignore all the other parts that say, and over, and, and in doing more testing doesn't help. Yeah. Like, that's what all these international research studies said. And, uh, we'll, we'll include- And the thing that does help, what, you know. What would it be, Lisa? What would it be? To, in <gasps> a, so two years ahead of their, or a year ahead of their peers. What, what, what? 
I feel like I've heard of it before. I might have mentioned early, it. Early education. Early education. Wow. That sounds interesting. So one of the things that I did find really interesting is that he said um, Simon Birmingham referred to it as a light touch test. <laughs> now, what else does he refer to as a light touch test? It's on transparent paper or something. No, that's how what he calls the jobs test. Oh, God. <laughs> the activity test. For light the touch child test. Package. He says it's a light touch test. In other words, you know, what he means by that in connection with the activity test is that, you know, you can pass it quite lightly by volunteering or something for eight hours a week. You know, you don't have to have be out there in the coal mines, you know, yeah. you can do something else. Oh, well, God. I just, look, if he keeps bringing in these light-touch tests, why bother? I know, what's the point? And, look, you don't have to take it from us sort of uh, listeners of the show. We will include a link to an article on the uh, the conversation, which obviously has a good focus on research and, and academia, and an article by, I'm, I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, for which I apologise, but it's um, Dr Misty Adenew. Uh, and she talks about that the... The, the, this particular test seems to be based very closely on one that's been running for quite a while in the UK and there's no evidence whatsoever that it's actually improved literacy or numeracy outcomes for children. So not only is it another unnecessary test, the test itself doesn't actually seem to... Um, the actual research and, and evaluations of this test seem to pretty conclusively prove that it does uh, nothing at all. Hmm. Yay. So, of course, Australia's picking it up. An, unuse, an, an, an unnecessary you know, new thing to do with no evidence that it'll work, we better get rid of that straight away rather than invest in early education. Yes. All right. The other um, big thing that sort of came out this week, particularly the ABC, they, they were, this was run on quite a few different platforms. So we're going to include a link to a, an audio story on ABC Radio National. Can we also um, put the link into the written version because some people like me don't do very well with audio. We absolutely Which I will. I know is a shocking thing for a podcast. <laughs> we absolutely will. And we'll include a link to uh, to the article on the ABC News page as well as um, uh, the the link to the to the ABC RN story. But uh, they've had a big look at um, the economics of early childhood, or obviously as the ABC terms it, childcare. So why is childcare so expensive? And and look, and there's there's and look, Lisa, you might have some different view on this. There's nothing particularly new here for me. They're obviously they've, they've had a look at a particular you know a couple of case studies of people who are struggling to to sort of pay the bills and um and that you know. For, for some people, the, the payment for early childhood education and care for their children, um, you know, is approaching, you know, their mortgage payment and people are considering taking out loans. Um, I don't know. I guess my only point of discussion here was that, you know, this the ABC obviously thought they had a fairly significant story here because they ran it over quite a few days, over quite a few a few platforms. Um, like, what? why do you think the ABC suddenly picked this up and given it a good run? Um. I'm not sure. It was a fairly well put together article. It had an academic in Sarah Fox. It had um, an economist, as in Ben Phillips, and someone from the childcare sector, as in Nesha Hutchinson from the Australian um, Childcare Alliance. Um, so, you know, it had good talent in it. So that's maybe one of the reasons. But yeah, I agree. It doesn't actually say anything and like I'm itching to write to them and suggest a story on let's look at who is making money um, out of mm. um, 
out of childcare because I think that's the story that you know isn't being told, and that's the story that people don't realise. Yeah, I'm specifically talking about um, landlords, not um, for-profit operators. For once, I'm talking about landlords, and I think that we need to you know um, uh, to do. Um, to think about that a lot more. Yeah. My only uh, annoying part of this is that they there's some fairly good analysis about all the economics and some of the, uh, the, the, the historical context of legislation and everything, but they don't really take on the Jobs for Families package. So they, they sort of mention it and they have a quote by... Uh, Stacey Fox, um, that sort of you know, highlights the potential issues for particularly disadvantaged and uh, vulnerable children. But it, even just, you know, that, that, so they've highlighted all these huge issues and then they have, you know, a couple of paragraphs on the government's planned policy response, which as you pointed out before, Lisa, um, even for those it will benefit is only by what, $30 a week. Yeah. This, that's this right. isn't a solution. So I would have loved to have seen the ABC really take like it would have been great to see the national sort of broadcaster really take that view on that, but they they seem to have just not quite done that right at the end, which is a bit disappointing. Yeah, yeah, and then and, the- and, look, and you know how you say like you know the ABC saw it as a big story and it's come over a few things. It hasn't really. It it's in you know like it looks big to us because it's our topic of interest, but it's it's <laughs> selection really- bias content on um you know a show called the money and you know and um and then it gets written up from there so yeah it's not it's not as huge news as what we'd like it to be oh well at least it's there somewhere and then they're probably the last bit of news for particularly early childhood uh, or, or all education and care services to be aware of is that uh, we're obviously only now a, a week or a, a, we're, well, less than two weeks away from the introduction of changes to the national law and regulations, so from the 1st of October. And uh, we won't have a regular episode in the week before that, so we'll bring it up now. But uh, we'll just include a link to a CEQA's page on that, on the, those those changes. There are... Uh, some significant changes in terms of particularly around, we've, we've talked on them in the podcast before, but around the role of the nominated supervisor, the need for sort of sleep and rest policies now, uh, and particularly for family daycare, a fairly significant number of changes about uh, um, operational matters there. So obviously, you know, the CEQA will be sending out, a, already have sent out, a, you know, a good amount of information on that, but we'll just include a link to to the their, their sort of main page where they're looking at the, the and changes. Everyone should look out for the new a secret guide to the national quality standard, which I understand they're doing in a bit of a, a huge publication Yay. around it that'll cover how they do assessment. I don't know if people saw the um, the paper that a secret put out on assessment last week, was it? Oh, was this another um, the the um Oh, what are they called? The occasional papers on quality of seven. No, no, it wasn't an occasional paper. It was just a two-page paper about how um, how they're looking at exceeding is um, is different now. Yeah. So um, yeah, I'd I'd um, get a get a handle of that one that's come out, and um, I'd also look out for the new guide to the national quality standard. Um, which um, should be out next week. Wonderful. Well before there, that's very organised, well before February when those changes yeah. will become into effect. Yep. Wonderful. 
All right. Well, we will head over after a quick musical break to our main topic for tonight, which is really excitingly an interview Lisa and I conducted uh, with uh, Professor Deborah Harcourt uh, on sort of uh, a whole range of topics, but particularly looking at uh, her concerns around how uh, – the, the, how early childhood centres are sort of being coached and, and primed and putting a surface level of quality on during assessment and rating. Bear with us as we have a quick break and we'll be back with Professor Deborah Harcourt. All right, everyone, we're back and we're very fortunate to be joined by Professor Deborah Harcourt. Deborah, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Liam. We've been... We've Hi, been... Deborah. Hi, yeah. Lisa. How are you? Lisa gets to say hello Good. too. <laughs> so, Deborah, I guess before we we crack on with a couple of things we wanted to talk to you about, can you sort of tell us a bit about yourself and all the various fascinating roles you hold? Hold or have held or will hold? Yeah, my life is a bit like that. Um, Liam, look, I've been in early childhood for um, more years than I would like to admit to. Um, but started life as a uh, preschool or kindergarten teacher, depending on what state you're in, um, and moved into the vet sector and then moved into the tertiary sector and then moved into the consulting sector. And I've had a great opportunity to work across many states with uh, lots of um Uh, sort of different institutions and different ways of working. And in between all of that, um, my family and I moved to Singapore for 10 years and I got heavily involved in that time with um, the Regimilia Educational Project. I was able to, you know, look at aspects of quality. Um, I guess my roadmap was anywhere from Sri Lanka to the West Uh, China and Korea to the north and out to Indonesia while based in Singapore. And in doing that, I guess I focus very much on um, approaches to early childhood curriculum development. But the other aspect of my work has always been to work in teacher education and how we can provide teachers with a really strong background and knowledge, particularly around child development. So that's kind of been my work Um, in that aspect, but in my academic work, in my research work, um, I focus very much on the rights of young children and what does that look and feel like um, in in the early childhood profession. So I guess my focus now is around the decisions that we make in early childhood, regardless of what they are, whether they're big policy decisions, change in the national quality framework, um, right through to everyday practice. So that's really um, what I've been focusing on for the last 30 years. Mm. So it's interesting. I think the, the reason we wanted to have you on, or one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, Deborah, was uh, for an article you wrote on LinkedIn, which was called uh, Seeking an Identity for Quality in Early Childhood Context in Australia, which was clearly influenced by time you'd actually spent in services and particularly looking at um, there's some fantastic lines in there, which I'm going to pull out later, but that sort of branding of quality and um, and some other stuff. But before then, uh, we, we actually wanted to welcome you to the to the podcast. Um, what is it? Fraternity Sisterhood? I don't know. I don't know what to call it in Australia, but uh, you've recently launched an, an sisterhood early, work. Sisterhood. Let's go with that. You've, you've recently launched a, 
a podcast. Now, the Australian accent does not do, and particularly mine does not do well with words like these, but it's called An Atelier of Rights. Did you want to just tell us a bit about, I guess, why you wanted to launch the podcast and, and what I guess what people can expect from it? Okay, so um, it's actually an atelier for reflection. Atelier, and, I'm going to work on that. And it, Yeah, but it's reflection. So what I wanted to do was... Um, I guess I just want to shake the pot a little bit and put a few cats amongst the pigeons. And what I wanted to do was to provide an opportunity. And the podcasts, as you might know, Liam, they're only 20 minutes long. And I've done that because I wanted to have an opportunity for people to perhaps listen um, in teams. And I thought 20 minutes was... Uh, you know, enough time to kind of sit and listen to something, some provocations, and then for people to start a you know a critical discussion around those particular things. And what I've what I've tried to do at the minute, I've sort of got twelve kind of working titles, I suppose. But what I'd like to do is to um, offer some discussions around things. Sometimes it's the elephant in the room that um, we all know is there, but people don't really want to talk about it um other things are you know the the kind of the sacred cows of early childhood and we've always done it so we'll just keep doing it but no one actually questions whether it's an appropriate thing to do yeah so these are that was the reason that I started to think about how could you know, how can I get the early childhood fraternity or sisterhood or whatever we want to call it, how can I get people to start thinking about what they're doing rather than a day full of tasks? So you you might have heard the very first one that I did was around um, the what I call the rush hours, which is 11 o'clock till in the morning till 2 o'clock in the afternoon and children being rushed through those processes and all the busy work and the monkey chatter that goes on during those times. And when I've worked with centres around examining that space, you know, the look of horror on educators' faces when they realise what they're doing to children during that time. So I really want to kind of just shake it up a little bit, be a little bit provocative. I don't mind... If I upset people, it's not my intention, but I want to start us to be this this notion of critical reflection, I think, is, um, you know, we've got to put our big girl pants on in this and we've really got to be brave and courageous in what we say. So that was really why I thought putting a podcast series together that was about reflecting on our practice putting some things out there that sometimes we just don't talk about, the elephant in the room, the the sacred cows, um, and just get people to talk. So I've only done two so far, so I'm a brand newbie to this, this podcast world. Um, but I've had some really great feedback um, just in terms of getting people thinking. So that's, yeah, that's yeah. what I thought I'd spend my spare time doing wonderful well, we can we can i think we can uh, we can relate in terms of spending whatever time we have uh, doing a podcast so and but look if people want to look up comes with our highest recommendation i've listened to the first two and they're both fantastic but uh, if people want to sort of track them down deborah where, where do they need to go to we'll include a link in our show notes as well though yeah well currently they're on podbean and and um 
I'm not the, the best technophile in the world, so trying to get them up onto um, in, into the iTunes store at the moment. Um, but, yeah, I'm on – it's uh, harcourtburke.podbean.com. Wonderful. And definitely and that's, that's wor- worth checking out, me. adding to your list of many early childhood podcasts you're listening to if you're not already. Um, but let's get on to, I guess, the main topic we wanted to talk about for tonight, and I'm hesitant to, to summarise this article too much because it's. It, I, I really want want people to go out there and read it, and it's possible people already have it. You wrote it, I think, in August, uh, in mid-August, mm. so it's been out there and for I a little while. I, Liam, I think I, it was my recommendation on yeah. the last week's podcast. That's right, and we have high expectations because... of all our listeners that they always do their homework and read the recommendations, so oh, I'm going to assume yeah. everyone's read yeah. this article <laughs> and is ready to be yeah. quizzed on it. Um, so, look, in, in, in very broad summary, I think you're taking a look at this idea of, I just love this term, flying squads, that we that we, mm. we sort of operate in a certain way for a period of time, assessment and rating comes around, and then suddenly there's all these people that no one's ever heard of from head office come down and, and basically put a mm. bit of a veneer of quality um, on everything. And you were, so I guess, challenging this from a perspective, but you also had some views on, you know, people sort of adopting, uh, which is a bit of a bugbear of mine as well, which is sort of Reggio-inspired practices and I know you've mm. had a very long and um, and and deep history with, with the, the practices and the, the teachers and the philosophies of Reggio Emilia. But, um, you know, I guess before we talk about the article itself, Deborah, what sort of made you want to put your fingers to the keyboard and, and put out this article? Because having written a lot of... Uh, <laughs> written a lot of posts but myself when I'm particularly cranky about someone I can usually tell when someone else has gotten cranky about something and felt they mm. had to write about it so tell us sort of what, what, what led up to this yeah. article being written yeah well that's you, uh, you've just about hit the nail on the head um, I, I guess I, it, it, in, in one way um, for the first time ever in my career I felt really compromised and I was invited to um, come and support a, a group of educators, which is fine. That's, that's you know, that's my daily work. Um, but unbeknownst to me, the, the kind of work that was being required um, was something that made me feel very uncomfortable. And during the two weeks of my um, work uh, with, with, with this team, um, I saw stuff that I thought had gone with, um, uh, you know, back in back in the day when there was a very large network of early childhood centres in this country, and we, um, I'd heard a lot about um, what I call the flying squads coming in and and borrowing staff and resources, etc., from other centres and bringing them in just to go through the accreditation process. And I thought we had done, we were done with that that we had moved under the National Quality Framework, we'd moved into a new space, um, we were being authentic about our work with children. I actually think I'm living in la-la land thinking like that because I have seen the practice of flying squads too many times in the last 12 to 18 months, beginning to think it was a one-off to start with, but now seeing that it is something that is, I think, um, is becoming as entrenched as it was, um, uh, you know, some years ago, ten years ago or so. And so, so what, sorry, Deborah. So, what are the so that, that I think is I think that part in particular of the article is what I think is what sort of provoked probably the biggest reaction of people. So, I've spoken to a lot of people who have read it um, and 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 agree. But what is it about that pr- practice in particular, that practice of flying squads, that really really worries you? And what does it sort of mean for the sector? 
Yeah, well, I think for this, if, if I can just give one, focus on one particular example um, where a flying squad came in, they, the flying squad was drawn from head office and, and some of the other centres within the, this particular network of early childhood centres. Um, but what, what particularly worried me was um, documentation was brought in from other centres and put up on walls as... Um, an indication wow. of the kind of work that was going on. Um, uh, environments were completely changed without consultation with the director, educational leader or the educators working in the rooms and, of course, no consultation with the children. With children either, yeah, yeah, exactly. And the, the, the stress that everyone was under was in, it was incredible to watch re, incredible to watch but what I had seen prior to the squads arriving was educators screaming at each other children being carried across a, a two-year-old being carried across uh inverted commas please the piazza um by hanging arms um just practices that I didn't think still existed in this country and the flying squad came in, the um, assessment and rating process went through and this centre got exceeding across all seven areas. Oh, no. And when the director rang me to share that news with me, I just said to her, I'm sorry, but I can't say well done. And, and did she recognise that? Oh, yes, yes, right. yes. She, she was highly embarrassed. But the whole process, the other thing that, that I feel really uncomfortable about was the whole process was taken away from the director and the educational leader. Yeah. Um, and that, that worried me that they were kind of pushed aside while the flying squad came in. And, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what... Um, you know, what experience or, or, or thinking that the flying squad had because they were drawn from a whole heap of um, other centres. But the other thing that really annoyed me was that they had gone through the same process with three other centres in the same five months in exactly the same way. It and shows I, yeah. how much corporate organisations... Um, value their reputation over their staffing, doesn't it? Well, it did. And one, Lisa, one conversation I had with the director, and I look, look, she was she was lovely, but didn't have the the you know the strength to be able to push back on this. But she said to me, "If we don't get exceeding, my head will roll." So she was worried yeah. about her yeah. livelihood. And you can't put people in that sort of situation. But uh, apparently, this was that she was preparing herself for the fact that she may well lose her job. Oh, that's terrible. And I just walked away, Liam. I was, I wasn't, I wasn't just angry. I was fuming. Yeah. That that this is still possible in 2017 with the new national quality framework in place. That this was still and, possible, and not and just that it was still possible, it. but that it wasn't um, apparent to the assessors that that's what Ex had happened. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. So since um, 
you asked me, Liam, what would I do about it? Well, I have have done something, and at the risk of being called a dibba dobba Cindy, <laughs> um, I actually rang the person responsible for the assessment and rating process at Asiqua because I just could not, I cannot, I have an ethical and moral responsibility to the children of this country to to share that experience. And and if it was a one-off experience, I probably That's would right. have gone, oh, yeah, all right, they're, they're a bit silly but it's not a one-off experience. Yeah, and I think that's my... This isn't about individual centres. It's about a wider a wider view. And yes. the distressing part of it is, and I'm looking, Deborah, I'm not surprised at all it's made you cranky and angry. It does the same thing for me. What disappoints me about this is the whole... The National Quality Framework withstood a whole barrage of criticism that it was not clear enough, it was too vague and it was too open to interpretation, but that was done specifically for this reason is that every service should and needs to be unique. The children Mm. attending Mm. that service are all individuals, the families that are coming with those children are all individuals, the teams and management structures of those organisations are are individual as well, and that's why cookie-cutter approaches to early childhood do not work. So to Mm. then have the National Quality Framework essentially... Um, I guess due to the restrictions of assessors and that they're only coming in for a short period of time, that that, that can be used to to essentially, you know, I don't want to use the word endorse, but allow these, you know, sort of uh, flying squad cookie kind of things to happen. That is a big concern. That's something the sector needs to, add, you know, I, I don't know whether there's a solution to it, but whether it needs to be acknowledged and, and talked about is, is really important, which is why your piece was... Um, very timely, I think, because I think it struck a lot of us. It, it, it seemed to strike chords with people, I think. And have you, have you yeah. sort of found that with the feedback you've gotten from it? Uh, absolutely. I've had lots of uh, emails and messages that uh, um, from other consultants, pe- people I don't know, who who are expressing the same concerns. Um, and you know, I was uh, you know I was even thinking you know we perhaps we need to get together and. You know, in a forum around that. I mean, we have some fabulous um, uh, conferences and seminars and professional learning in this country, but I don't think yet we have a forum of or consultants. For, yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I was thinking, Lisa. Was how do you how do you get some of the the consultants who work across the country? To, to actually come together in a dialogue to say, well, you know, what are you seeing and, and what do we have? Because I'd like to be solutions focused on this. I'd like to be able to not just whinge about what I see, but I'd like to say perhaps there's some, there's some alternatives here and I believe one of the alternatives should be that, that no, um, uh, no notice is given. You just the assessor should just turn up. You know they can ring at five o'clock on Monday afternoon and say we're going to be there tomorrow and Wednesday because children deserve the best quality practice every single day. Not just because in two weeks' time an assessment and rating process or you know whatever the accreditation yeah, process is going to be. To, what happens to the centre after the process? Like, how can a centre possibly cope with with that process having happened to them, I bet you've got a lot of disillusioned staff, a, a director that doesn't feel like their their best is good enough. Like, mm, mm. Well, I just uh, what what I have heard, 
and I've said this many, many times before, what I've heard, um, you know, directors or supervisors saying after the process is, um, um, uh, my girls, in inverted commas, <laughs> my girls are yep. so exhausted, I'm just going to give them a break now. Don't, don't yeah. sort of push them too far. Can you not come and visit now for the next three months because I just want to give them a bit of a break? And I just think, hang on a second here. What, you've got no children coming for the next three months? <laughs> Is that the kind of break you're talking about? Yeah. <laughs> because once again, the bottom line is, is children have the right to a high-quality early child experience every single day they attend. Now, that's just, look, you're just getting a bit too demanding there. (laughs) (laughs) Can I just... Well, I'm doing a bit of foot-stomping One of the things that I really loved about the article, because um, it covers something that I've been looking at, is the what you talk about as the look of quality and as if mm. there is a look that um, denotes quality. I'll just read um, a part of your article. I am offered a view of a glossy setting replete with timber furnishings, loose parts, mirrors, light boxes, same-coloured pencils sorted into glass jars and the latest must-have from the catalogues. Is that something that you're seeing a lot of and why? how did that happen? Like it seems to have just developed over the long, since 2012, I mm. think, that we now mm. have a very, this is what, what a good quality centre must look like. Mm. Well, I, I, think, I think there's a couple of things, Lisa, and I, I don't have the answers, but I, I guess there's a couple of things that, the advent of some rather large or large-ish networks in this country have, um, in their expansion model, um, there has become what I can see that particular look emerging. So, you know, it was only yesterday I saw yet another one and I just was banging my head against the wall going, oh, my goodness, not again. Um but this was replete with free iPads and stuff like that, which we won't go into right. today. But, um, but one, one of the things that I think happened, and I think it might have even been prior to 2012, Lisa, is something happens on the Qantas jet when it comes from Italy to Australia. There must be something <laughs> in the air there. I don't know, it's that spray that they spray as groups of people move from a certain town in the north of Italy to, um, you know, wherever it is, Brisbane or Melbourne or Sydney or Perth or Adelaide or wherever it is. And I think it might have happened um, in the US where um, there's been a very strong focus on... um, and again, I'm going to use inverted commas, sorry to keep doing this all the time, but the Reggio approach. And th- there seemed to be something that emerged from that, and why I do not know, that we needed to trade all the plastic with um, timber, which is fine. And as Look, I said in the I'm article, I don't have a problem. about changing the plastic to timber, but why does it have to be white timber? What have we got against dark timber or red-coloured timber? <laughs> Why has it got to be this Scandinavian-looking timber? Well, well, see, you see what happens is when you get off the plane, off the Qantas jet, you jump in the cab and you go straight to a certain Swedish store. 
Ah. That's how it happens because that's what the Swedish store offers, you see. I'm not sure they have dark timber in that certain <laughs> Swedish store. I'm not sure. But, you know, one of the, one of the things I say to centres is, you know, when they're going through a transformation is you've got it, you're right, the, the question has to be why. Why do you want these particular things? And a lot of it is because they've seen it on Pinterest or they've seen it on social mm. media in this is what quality now needs to look like. But more distressing for me is families are now starting to think that this is what quality looks like without yeah. any clear understanding of why we would have these things. But if you say to a centre, for example, one of the things I, you know, I say to centres if they want to, they want to change their plastic to timber, that's fantastic. Tell me about your sustainability policy or your approach to sustainability because it's not just turning the lights off and making sure the, the tap's not dripping. So one of the things that, that I ask people to look at you know, is this notion of upcycling and repurposing um, furniture and equipment that other people, it's past their use-by date from other people. Um, and then I start to see centres really digging deeply into the why bucket and thinking about things like, well, why couldn't we have an adult-sized table in our, you know, kindy room or our you know, our four-year-old room or our three-year-old room. What what would that do? Why, why would we want to have something like that? So these are some of, this is starting to, I think, chew on some of those, the sacred cows. And if you ask people, for example, and this is slightly off track, Lisa, so sorry. Um, That's okay. Is, is when I ask people questions, do you know how we got to have um, children's size furniture? Where did that come from? And people don't even know or maybe they're not interested in how we got to have these places that were full of little people stuff, little furniture and, you know, little bikes and all of this sort of stuff when the real world doesn't actually work like that. So the answer to that question is that kind of way of um, having all this little people stuff came from Montessori. But then we've got to ask, well, why did Montessori want to have all this little furniture? And then we've got to think about the, the kinds of children that Montessori was working with. So I think in early childhood we've got to look at our history and our tradition and think where did it come from and how can we evolve from that? So when I'm talking to centres who want to replace the plastic with timber furniture, the question is, what about sustainability? But also, why would we want to have a big size table? Well, it brings a different perspective. And just on Friday, there was a, a brand new big size old table that had come in that cost 50 bucks from somewhere. And this, this little person, he sat at that table for three hours. And they mm -hmm. said they'd never, ever seen him do that before. But he could see his classroom from a whole different perspective because he was up in an adult-sized up chair well, up isn't that wonderful? and just viewing the world from that perspective. So mm. I think it's not just why do we just have white timber furniture or um, that bland, horrid, coloured furni timber furniture that comes from the Swedish place, <laughs> but it's really around the, 
you know, perspectives and connections to the real world. That's what our early years learning framework asks us to do. I think so that- part of it is, though, a bit of a connection to the real world. And I think that the real world it's connecting to is quite a strange connection because <laughs> we you, you raised Pinterest, which I think is really true, that a lot of educators are on Pinterest. And I see a lot of posts on Facebook of these pristine environments once they've redone it, asking for people's approval for what they've done in remodelling their centre. I look at some of that, I take some of it back to ECA did a a remodel of a a service um, uh, in the NQFPLP series and it did that kind of transformation from a very plastic cluttered thing to a very spare white wood furniture thing and I think that might have been, you know, something that a lot of people saw. But I also think that some of the educators who are doing these makeovers of the rooms are also being influenced by reality TV shows like The Block. Mm. And I had a very unnerving episode a few weeks ago where I was simultaneously looking, flicking through photos of services at the same time I was booking an Airbnb holiday. And I actually got the windows mixed up because the service <laughs> I was looking at and the house I was looking at both had a grey sofa with yellow cushions in you know, stark mm, relief. Mm, and mm. I thought, this is what it's beginning to look like. I then took my son, who, and I might have said this before on the podcast, um, Liam, but I took him as a photographer on a photo shoot to a series of services and he came out of one service and he said, Mum, I've been around you enough to know that that is absolutely one of the worst childcare centres I've ever been in. But looking at it, I can see why people of my generation, he's in his young 20s, would choose it for their children. It looks like the sort of architecture that we've been brought up um, to believe is key through things like Apple stores, etc. And it felt so clean and ordered and neat compared to some of the places you're taking me to that I know are great for children but are chaotic to look at. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 lots of influences, I think. Yeah. So just to, because um, I think the, the, the perspective in the article <clears throat> is really interesting in terms of these sort of, um, I guess the extreme part of this problem, which is where there's this this one decided approach, that's how it's marketed, it's how it's put together, and at certain times, I think there's two issues. So I think there's sort of a, during assessment and rating, it sort of comes in and centres are refreshed to look like that. But I think it's also a problem for new centres being built where there's and, and sort of stocked with resources that there's just this very, they're almost interchangeable, the centres. It's like, you know, the exact, you, you, they've got a, a checklist of ordering and everything's thrown in. I mean, just to, um, I guess, provide, not, not, devil's advocate although I do, I do love to do that but to provide you know to, to discuss an alternate perspective is <clears throat> I guess one of the things we're always looking for in, in early childhood particularly if we're um, you know maybe we work in one you know geographical community area and we run multiple services or or we, we we're involved in the creation of you know a lot of new services there's that there are things we can agree on that are good for children or good for most children communities so is it necessarily that there isn't an approach to to how centres are resourced and how they look? Is it more that 
the, the, the problem you are seeing now is just that it's gone completely to one extreme. Is there an opportunity, you know, for services and educators and, and organisations to agree on fundamentals or agree on things that children deserve in, in particular spaces? Oh, I, I think so. Absolutely. I, there's, I think we've got some wonderful examples in, in Australia where, you know, small to medium networks um, have that uniqueness in terms of um, each of its each of its services or each of its centres are, um, you know, they have their own their own flavour, if you will. They're very reflective of the community of where that um, particular setting is. But you know, I think generally, if you look at, um, I, you know, I remember back in the day when I was working with the Croatian Kindergarten in Queensland, and we built a new centre up here on the Sunshine Coast, and you know, there are there are a few things that we were must-haves and, you know, one of them was a full set of unit blocks um, and I think some of the Creation Kindergarten Association centres in Australia who've been open for about 100 years has probably still got their original unit blocks because they last so long. But but for me it, it would be around not, not saying a particular bucket list of things but um, how I would say open-ended resources that we we should be providing children with open-ended resources, both indoors um, and outdoors, that support the holistic development of children. But one of the things I'd like to see is probably a little bit more discussion around how those resources and, and why we would um, purchase or source particular resources that we move away from this notion, this is not something else I've been writing about lately, is around this notion of uh, our obsession with children's interests to actually start to think about how these resources support children's thinking. And I guess, it, you know, if we, were, if we were going to develop a list of resources, you know, I'd, I'd like to see how we, you know, it'd be two columns. The first column is the list of resources, but the second column was how does that support thinking children's thinking and development um, and, and moving right away of, oh, this is for gross motor and this is for fine motor and this is for sensory play. I feel like jumping off a table at a blunt knife. Everybody, every time everyone, anyone says to me, oh, I'm offering these sensory experiences. So I think, Liam, there's not a, a definitive answer to your question, but I'd like, um, you know, whoever does the resourcing in, in these new builds to have really think deeply about those columns and in the second column the you know why would you need to have that above and beyond the traditional way of looking at um, you know for example dramatic play space um, and one of the you know what one of the things that I would like people to start thinking about is moving away from you know the dress ups into um, transformation because a lot of the dress-ups that are offered to young children the, the costume tells the child who they're going to be so they spend the rest of the day being I don't know Batman or whoever mm -hmm. it is rather than it being complementary to the child's identity so I'm not sure that there is a definitive list but I would really you know I'd be happy to work with people on developing a list that has those two columns so that the people who are actually working with the resources alongside of children actually know the potential 
the you know the possibilities of being able to use these resources above and beyond that traditional way of looking at them in you know chunked up areas of development. I think that's always a thing. It's not about the actual uh, thing itself; it's the thinking behind it. So the problem is, so the the thinking behind these extreme things is you know corporate or or um, you know desire to to make changes really quickly. It's always, as you said, it's that thinking that goes on behind it. So I mean, we've raised the, your article, and I guess even just our chat today has raised you know a huge number of issues that I think the sectors you know got to face. Do you know if you had you know not advice, but it, what 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 are you what are you most hoping the sector will take away from those perspectives you raised in that article and I guess in our discussion tonight? What are you hoping, you know, people will go away and, and most clearly think about? Well, I guess, you know, as I raised in the article that, that there were those three questions that I proposed in the article and, you know, the first question was can quality really look like something? Um, and I, th- I think we've got to find our own identity around that. We've been, we have become very enamoured with that, very sleek look and Lisa's um, analogy there of getting mixed up between Airbnb and and um, uh, early childhood centres is is exactly what's exactly what's going on. It's still that quality still has to not have an identity as a place that welcomes children first and foremost. But but does it actually have to look like something? It's probably I'd ask people to think about that notion of welcome and if you're welcoming children or if the centre lies in wait for the children for the next day, what does that look and feel like? Rather than it being a glossy um, magazine version, but I guess the other thing I'd like people to think about, and, and particularly in corporate early childhood, is could we please offer a narrative that goes with the glossy photos? And that's the one thing that I really dislike about Pinterest is there is no narrative that goes with any of those. I mean, there's some fabulous ideas there, don't get me wrong. But unless you know what you're looking at, we don't know why that particular photograph or series of photographs has been put there. So there's no narrative that goes with that. So if we're going to have photographs of centres on you know, new builds or whatever it is and look how great we are, I'd like to see instead of the 45 photographs, maybe have five or six, but they have an adjoining narrative so that the viewer or the reader, who are often other early childhood um, professionals, understands why we've done it in this way. So it just doesn't become, I like that idea, I'm going to do that tomorrow with no thinking around why would you do it in that way. So I'd, that would be one thing that I'd really, I'd really like people to begin to do um, is to offer that narrative or discussion or these are the reasons why we thought that, that this would be a high-quality environment for young children. So that would be one thing. If I had one wish, <laughs> I wish that would happen. And I think that that's... That's an achievable wish. And every time I see one of those posts on Facebook or wherever, I always write back to them and say, can you tell us a little bit about this? And the other thing is, and this probably opens up another can of worms, but there's never photos of children engaging in those I know. What's that about? Do they mess up the environments? Do they detract from your perfect Pinterest picture? 
I'm not I'm not sure, Lisa. I mean, one part of me, because of my, you know, work in the area of children's rights, is you know, maybe one part of me is trying to say, Deborah, they're trying to be very respectful of the children. But the photographs themselves, that being aside, one of the one of the things that has really struck me on my many visits, and I've been so blessed, but on my many visits to Reggio in Italy, to centres when there are not children there, you go in the afternoon, the children are still there. They're, they're yeah. present. Yep. They're present. You can That's, almost yeah. feel them breathing. Yeah. But in these photographs, there is no sense, there's no trace, there's no perfume of the children being there. And that's what really worries me is that they're presenting these pristine environments um, and with, without any sense of, well, how do children engage with these environments? You know, what does this do in terms of children's thinking? And it's almost like there's a scorched earth policy at the end of the day where everything must be completely tidied and it's like, you know, the fairy comes in in the afternoon and everything is just put back perfectly but what what trace or memory does that give children about what they've been thinking about the day before or the week before or whenever they were last there? So that's probably another one of my problems. I went to a centre once that had an environment manager and when I unpicked what that actually meant, it meant removing all traces of children so that the place looked good by the time the parents came. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. Well, I haven't... I've, <laughs> That, <clears throat> that's taking blind squads <laughs> to another level. I've made up it some is. titles in the past. That's a doozy. <laughs> but um, all right, well, Thank Deborah, you so much we for really appreciate it. Oh, uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Deborah, for for people who want to find out more of um, what you have to say, and hey, so how can people sort of find you uh, online? Well, they can find me. They can find me on LinkedIn. So it's um, Professor Deborah Harcourt on LinkedIn. Um, we have a Facebook page, which is Asia Pacific Early Childhood Consultants. Um, and, of course, our podcasts, which are on Podbean. That's the major ways of finding me at the moment. And we have a great website too, www.asiapacificearlychildhoodconsultants.com. Wonderful. We'll include links to all of those as well. So, Deborah, again, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much, well, Liam. Thanks, Lisa. All right, welcome back. Thanks again to Professor Deborah Harcourt for joining us. Um, I think we we really enjoyed that discussion. There's a lot for the sector to think about there, and uh, I've known Professor Harcourt for for a while, and she she certainly does enjoy putting the cat among the pigeons, as she as she described it. Uh, but let's move on with our recommendations for the week. So, Lisa, what are you sharing with the sector? Look, I'm sharing with the sector everything that you need to make write a perfect sleep policy, which everyone needs to do under the changes to the NQF. Every service now, Regulation 168 is a bit... Uh, is it 168 or 68? It's 168. It's 168. It's adding that you've got to have a sleep policy. And um, I noticed today someone on um, some uh, one of the uh, Facebook groups asked if anyone had resources, and I could instantly say, yes, of course, Queensland <laughs> has resources because Queensland does these things really, really well. 
And I noticed while I was um, fiddling around another um, site today that Queensland actually um, funded an academic in Queensland to do some research on sleep. But all um, this is like more research, more resources than anyone could ever possibly want about sleep to help you think about, you know, what you need to do and what you need to put in to that policy um, about about sleep that you've got to do it that you've got to uh, do. So there's podcasts, there's videos, there's. Um, uh, you know, uh, documents about um, uh, sleep rest and relaxation and sleep health and sleep development and how you should work with families in partnership around sleep, etc. So, yeah. Wonderful. I think it's good. I always kind of wondered why that policy came up and I'm wondering if, in fact, it came up because Queensland had funded that research and found out that a lot of, um, I think if I'm remembering rightly, that what the research actually found out was that um, sleep that children, especially in the preschool years, were having at um, in education care centres was being deducted from their sleep at night times. So mm. they were awake later at night time if they had a sleep in the daytime. Fascinating. Mm. Yeah, well, that would be a fantastic resource for something that the sector has to sort of uh, have done or we all be doing between now and October. So uh, definitely one worth checking out if that's something your service will be looking at. Uh, my recommendation for the week is is a quick one. It's from uh, a, a, an organisation we've linked to a few times in the past, which is uh, NAEYC, which is a New York-based uh, advocacy. Mm, I don't think it's New York, is it? I'm pretty sure it is, isn't it? N-A- N-A-E-Y-C? No. The National, so. the the National Nash- Association for the Education of Young Children. No, it's Washington, actually. I yeah. think I was just seeing the N, I assumed New York. So we've, uh, they're a fantastic early childhood. Come on, uh, an early childhood education couldn't afford New York rents. <laughs> That's very true. Very true. Well, Hillary Clinton might donate it for free with the Clinton <laughs> Foundation. They're, they're big on early childhood education. It's a really interesting article uh, called Welcoming Refugee Children into Early Childhood Classrooms. And look, it is uh, uh, published and written in America, but it is pretty generalised. And I think the the, the sort of dis- the discussion points and the practices uh, listed there are all pretty useful. And particularly for services around the country that are working with the AMEP program, so the Adult Migrant English program. So you might have um, children... Uh, from a refugee background in your service as part of this program. There's some really fantastic guidance and advice on on how to support those children, so I would definitely recommend looking into that one. Uh, but that's it for the week. As we said, we'll be, we'll be kind of off for, t- for two weeks, essentially. We'll, we, we might have a couple of small episodes if I'm feeling organised, but uh, we hope everyone has a great couple of weeks. So until then, it's bye from me. And from me. You have been listening to The Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Leah McNicholas and produced by Leah McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com and while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the Support the Show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.